Hi, this is Mike, co-host of Realistic Sustainability, the podcast, which you probably already know, but I'm also the author of A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life. That was the book that led to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and, well, even this show. It offers tips on promoting your positive footprint while decreasing your carbon footprint. So, if you want to read what started all of this, get A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life, available on Amazon, eBay, Etsy, or just visit greeningyourlife.org for more information. Thank you for joining the sustainable movement and promoting a greener future. Hi, and welcome back to Realistic Sustainability. I'm Mike, and I'm here with Nick. Good evening, good evening, good evening, my brother. How are you? I'm not too bad, not too bad. Today, there was an impromptu city cleanup, so I decided to run out there and help clean up trash and cigarette butts and things like that, which was kind of cool because I got to talk to some people. Now that I've been doing the Edible Landscape Project, people come out and start asking questions from their homes. And I found out today that this lady who sits on her porch most of the day watches everybody come down the road and check all the plants and pull some of the vegetables. And she's even seen kids riding their bikes, stopping and checking and grabbing cherry tomatoes and green beans to snack on. That's awesome. I only bring it up because I ran into something recently. I went down to North Carolina. A friend of uh, a couple of friends of mine got married. And during that road trip, Jamie and I had decided we needed to stop, get a bite to eat. And it was in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a little bit busier area. And of course, I miss my turns and we get lost. And of course, we're bickering over where to eat, all the normal things. And I end up in this little neighborhood. And while I'm trying to get back to where I was, I look over and it's a small house with a small lot and all of their yard was a garden. Okay. And that was cool to see. And if it wasn't for the situation, I would have stopped, pulled over and took pictures of those poor people's yards because I was excited. I mean, full, full stocks of corn right in the front yard. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. If you get you know room and you want to grow something, why not? Jamie and I keep making jokes back and forth. She's willing to give up the front yard if I'll give up the backyard because I have all the garden stuff back there. And I really want to turn the front yard into a full garden. And her only answer is yes, but I get a tiny house in the backyard. So she wants a, a she shed. She wants a she shed that is a kid's play area that when they're too old to use can be her she shed. They're almost too old to use it now. I believe they are, but she, she really does not believe they are. You know, the stairs I have, the big, huge stairs that go to nowhere yes. at the moment. She wants to turn the center of that underneath into a play area for the kids. She's uh, she's much better than I am. <laughs> she's building all these things, and oh, she's so creative, and the things she does for the kids are amazing. I, I honestly never even considered it. I, I often think about places to hide from children, but not places to hide for children. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. A good idea. Anyway, so this week might be a little bit more interesting of a discussion just because it's not necessarily a widely known term. Like I said before, when you and I were discussing before the show, I, I wanted to know how much you knew about biomimicry. And that's what I want to talk about today is biomimicry. Biomimicry is the design and production of a material structure or system that is modeled around biological entities or processes. That's the definition. Basically, it is what we design based on how nature has already designed it. So I, I guess solar panels would be a kind of obvious 
something in biomedic or using the sun's light to create energy. Yeah, it's a, it's an attempt to start that process. Now, are we anywhere close to what a leaf can do? Not not really, but it is the attempt to say, okay, all of the foliage on this planet can be 100% run by the sun. How come we can't and how can we? And that's what and, and and that's what you're seeing from solar power. It is it is a unique way of looking at things. I can tell you being an engineer, it's not the most common way. And what it has done for me while studying biomimicry is how can I integrate what I'm doing into nature instead of taking the nature out? We talk you've actually said it a bunch of times, like stop trying to take nature out of the nature. It's true though. I, I've never understood that. You know, people will come in, they'll bulldoze 10 acres, put an apartment complex up, then they'll take like 10 by 20 feet of it, square it off, put a protected national monument or national park sign on it, and plant a tree. Yeah. Or cut down a tree to make a birdhouse. Or we, we always joke about destroying nature so we have something for nature. My favorite one is selling honey in a box that looks like a honeycomb. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time. That's what I want to talk about today is biomimicry. Now, one of the easiest ways to do that is to look at examples of biomimicry. But what I like to think about is, is every time you have a problem, look back and ask nature. Because every single thing I watch on biomimicry starts the same way. Is that nature started its R&D on how to do things right about 3.8 billion years ago. And so they have a little bit of a jump start on us. Just a minute. Yeah, not, not too long. So we're really just trying to take our lessons from from those who have learned a long time ago how to do it right, because the ones who didn't aren't here. That's a fair assessment. So, in, you know, here we are 3.8 billion years later. The ones that are here are the winners thus far in and how to solve the problems. And that is why the study of biomimicry is slowly becoming a little bigger as we deal with climate change, as we deal with all these natural issues that are man-made, we have to stop making the changes. You've you've heard me complain in some of our episodes. You've I've even made shorts complaining that we try to engineer our way out of problems. We try to buy our way out of problems when really we just need to function within the system. Well, yeah, but I mean, biomimicry goes back, I guess, a little further than solar panels for me anyways. just dawned on me that like planes exist. And I guess technically that would be an early form of biomimicry because, you know, we, we weren't born with the ability to fly. Other animals were so. And do you know who was the per first person to study biomimicry for flight? I only ask this because it's one of my favorite people in history. Don't tell me. Um, I've got a big art piece on my wall that is scribblings of which wall is it a wall i've ever seen in my living room and the same wall as my earthrise photo just further to the left van gogh nope well, I'm, I'm not I don't, I don't i'm not an art major dude um but uh <laughs> i am drawing a blank on the name because i am on the spot right now so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to tell us he's probably italian it's most it likely italian one of my favorite people in history, and I learned about him in Mott Community College in an art class. And what I loved about learning about Leonardo da Vinci <laughs> is that he only did art. He only created sculptures to get the money to do his engineering. And he had a fascination 
with what he would buy birds that are captured just to let them go and then draw them flying as quickly as possible. He was one of the first, one of the first pioneers of the concept of biomimicry. The first wings he put on flying devices, the first drawings were all designed after bat and birds. Well, that makes sense though. I mean, the only other flying um, objects, if you will, at that time are going to be insects. And I guess you can catch insects, but at that time, studying them be incredibly hard birds are pretty good size and so are bats and you get to study the way they fly which is very different i'm sure that bats can fly like birds but if you've ever really seen them fly they don't look anything alike no no I, and but it's so interesting to watch and and from reading about leonardo da vinci he was very very obsessed with just watching birds take off that was his problem. Watching them glide and all that stuff was neat, but he had that kind of figured out. He he was looking for the takeoff. How you know how do the mechanics work? And he was constantly just going into the market, buying these caged birds just to let them go and draw them as quickly as possible. It, you know that's got to be really perplexing. Like I, it's one of those areas where we take it kind of for granted. At least if you know, you'll take it for granted. Is that like when I look at birds, like I know their their bones are hollow. I know that disproportionately larger than their body to move enough air to lift off. You know, the, if you ever look at a bird, they're all winged. Their bodies are hardly there at all. If you look at a hummingbird, that's a perfect example. Their, their body's the same size as their head, and those combined aren't the, half the size of their wings because they need they need the extra mass in their wings and those muscles to provide lift and move the air so they can get up in the air. Gliding's easy. You know, once they did all the work to get in the air, all I have to do is stick their arms out and hover. That part's nothing. <laughs> but liftoff, that takes some oomph. Leonardo da Vinci had a pretty special mind, at least from my reading. So I could see where he could just get buried in the thought of that. I I don't get to use biomimicry in what I do, but I do get to try to mix it into anything that has to do with the city structure. Edible landscaping is one project, but really the whole idea is how do we create a symbiotic relationship with the nature around us with our cities? It's a little easier in a small town. It would be really hard in New York. But I think the thought process matters. Well, I think the thought process matters. But also, every area you try it's going to have its own difficulties. And you mentioned a small town. Then you mentioned New York. One of the, the benefits to your small town is you have a lot more area to put in small gardens and do that kind of stuff. Not even thinking about the people and, and, and the difficulties you may face dealing with them. But just in your small town, there's grass and trees everywhere. If you want to find grass and trees in New York, outside of a park, you're going to be looking at, you know, gardens on top of skyscrapers. Then they're not exactly, you know, there's not a whole lot of trees in the middle of New York. Wouldn't it be cool if we didn't look, if we didn't look at every single animal as a pest? As a raccoon, as a squirrel, any animal that comes into the city, people just think, oh, it's just it's a pest. It's a pest. It's a pest. It's a pest. But we took their space. And wouldn't it be interesting if, if there was a way to create that symbiotic relationship where nature didn't actually have to fully be displaced, but yet we can still live our life? You know, I think that'd be amazing. But I think that what you're actually talking about is a, is educating a lot of people on things they never considered when you talk about animals, like for instance, behind my house fall of last year and spring of this year, I had a fa family of woodchucks. I almost said groundhogs, but woodchucks living behind my house. 
two large adults and probably two to three babies. Now everyone's like, Oh no, you got to get early. They're terrible for your foundation. And they, they're you're right. They are, but I don't think that because they're terrible for the foundation, that's a reason they should die. Right. I, I personally think that when it comes to, you know, your, your, your animals around you, you should know what you have. And like, take possums are a great example. Most people just want to kill them. They always, because they're ugly. They're not pretty, but possums are pretty durable. They're, they're actually not very violent. They're very kind. They eat a lot of things you don't like. And, they don't really bother, at least personally, they don't bother me at all. They do the raccoons, though. You know, I love those little trash pandas. <laughs> well, and fun story. When I first moved into this house in downtown Duran, which is very limited nature, we have some exceptionally well-fed trash pandas in this town. And Jamie and I were staying, we heard a noise on the back porch, and I had luckily had already had the light on. So we had just the screen door closed, so you have this reflection, right? And, and I know animals were getting into my trash. That's why I have the little trash house now. And we're standing there watching what looked to be a 30-pound or larger, well, well, well larger than his frame raccoon on my porch, less than a foot from me. Because we're standing there and all he sees is the reflection and we can see him clear as bell. As he's kind of looking around, getting trying to reach over to the can. And we got to sit and watch him in a, in a very close environment, still safe for both of us. And it was really quite cool, you know. And finally, you jiggle the handle. It startles him. He, he waddles quickly away. <laughs> he was really, and I say he, I don't know he or she, but it was very big. A very, very large raccoon. A well-fed raccoon. But it was the last time we saw them come hit him come to the house but it was it's fun to watch because we don't see nature anymore we get a few squirrels oh, we've got lots of bunny rabbits in town that's one thing we do have is a ton of rabbits uh as a matter of fact i even put what i jokingly call sacrificial lettuce around the property so that they have something to eat that isn't necessarily the garden <laughs> if you give them something easy that doesn't require risking their life, like going to the backyard with our dog, they'll eat it. So there's a lot of them around. So we have some nature, but not a lot. See, we have a lot more than you do. I live in the township and there is my house is surrounded by trees and, and animals and stuff. So, I mean, I get a lot more opportunities to look at that kind of stuff. We get possums and we get, we get skunks and raccoons all the time and with the woodchucks. One of my favorite days, I literally wasted two hours watching a woodchuck and this dude, it might've been a lady woodchuck. It might've been a gentleman. I have no idea, but he was huge. He was probably like, he was the size of both your cats combined. Like this. Oh, and I do not have off. little cats. <laughs> like he crawled up on the handrail to the deck and he laid across it and stretched out and he put his head up on the, you know, cause where the two sections combine, there's like a little knob that sits on top. He put his head up there and rested it. And as he did that and he relaxed, his fat just kind of hung over the sides and you ceased to see wood. Like he just covered everything. <laughs> He's and like he, my spirit animal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I was like, I, I understand that buddy. And he fell asleep and I watched him sleep for a long time. It was the cutest thing. I wanted to go out and pet him. But he ran away when I opened the door. So, um, not really. He <laughs> fell off and wobbled his way on, back under the deck. There was no running about it. But he was awesome. He was super cool. We see deer a lot. I love watching deer. We have tons of rabbits. I couldn't give a crap about rabbits. And he, my issue with rabbits is they're practically worthless. I mean, they're. I, I don't want to hurt rabbits. I mean, they're cute, but they're, they're like, cute. 
All they can do is get eaten. Like rabbits serve no <laughs> purpose. They are food for everything else. And so they're just sitting there like, you'll be driving down the two track to my house. And if you stop and really pay attention, so these ears pop up, there's probably 10 rabbits there. It's like a quarter mile long. And there's a lot of little bunny foo-foos wrapping around. Well, and I know the first thing someone's going to say is that when we become too close of friends with wildlife, they become, in a sense, domesticated and unable to live in nature. But the goal is, is that we are all nature That's... and that that they are safe in the environment or reasonably safe in the environment anyways. But That's actually fairly inaccurate. I mean, I'm sure people will say that, but most animals, most wild animals that don't get trapped or caught, they don't actually get what I would call gentle. They're tamed. They'll take your food. A raccoon will eat your garbage all day long. I dare you go out and try to domesticate it. Go pet it. Go touch that raccoon. We had the lazy bunny, though. We did have the bunny who did not care to really run from us. And I'm assuming that's because he really isn't scared of us. Or because like he's a rabbit and all they can do is get eaten. I, I did kind of just say that. Uh, <laughs> rabbits have no self-defense. Did you know the, a rabbit, if you pick a rabbit up the wrong way and it kicks its legs too hard, it can actually paralyze itself? I did not know that. Yeah, because that's useful in the wild. I, I just, I, I, I know it sounds like I'm hating on rabbits and anyone that loves bunnies, I'm sorry. But uh, when it comes to some of the other animals that you're going to come across, like squirrels, raccoons, anything that's semi-nocturnal and can climb a tree. And oh, by the way, has hands with thumbs. They're not as friendly as you think they are. Like, for instance, I used to feed squirrels out of the palm of my hand. I did it every single summer at my grandma's house up in West Branch. Every summer, same squirrels. Okay? One time, I tried to pet one of those squirrels. And? The squirrel ate out of my hand. I figured I could pet its head. I got bit six times in less than a second. Oh, I hope you went to the doctor. Nope. I went to grandpa screaming my eyes off. I cried and cried. I was like six years old. My point is, though, <laughs> is that wild animals, when you invade their space and take the area that they would normally have for food, trees, certain kinds of plants, berries, whatever the, their normal food source is, when you disrupt that and they're going to eat whatever they can. If they, you, have, you have garbage that they think is delicious, they're going to eat your garbage. Right, right. So, well, here I am uh, taking us off on a tangent uh, about just the the nature side of it but i want to go back into some of the biomimicry things i think i think you'll find this first one interesting and that is wind turbine blades there's a company out there that made wind turbine blades that mimic the fins on humpback whales because yeah. hump, humpback whales are so large but yet so agile in the water and how they catch and move both air and water what they did is and i'm going to try and get this right they copied the bumps on their fins, which are turbicles, I believe is how you pronounce that, mm -hmm. and put them on the blades. And as they're continuing to work on this, they're talking about actually increasing the efficiency of that wind turbine by almost 20%. Just by giving these air movement pockets and, and bumps so the air has to press against something as it passes through, making it easier to turn the turbine. That would make sense. It really maximizes the aerodynamics of the blade, which I thought, I mean, I, I know I have a bunch of these, but I, I read that one for like an hour. Look at it because it's really quite interesting. They're using the fluid mechanics of water for the fluid mechanics of air. Well, yeah, but that's it's the same thing, though. I mean, in, in really rudimentary, water is just super thick air. When you think about it, and this is predominant with whales that, that, that breach. Not all whales breach. Some do, but not a lot of them. 
generally when whales breach, they use the the shape of their fluke and the shape of their fins as they come out of the water. They turn it like a like a you know a prop on a boat that helps them give the direction to where they're going to come up and fall. So that makes perfect sense. It also makes sense like if you, for instance, you were a kid at some time, I and mean, how many times when you were younger did you stick your arm out the window of a car when it was going? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, okay. and play with the wind and let it push yeah. my arm up and down. Yeah, well, if you actually do as an adult and pay attention to the differences it makes every time you move a finger and shape your hand differently, then you would have a lot better of an understanding as to what those bumps actually do. If if there is more room for the air to kind of move in between things and get, if you will, a grip, I don't know how else to word that, it would make a lot of sense to me, at least, as to why it would be more effective. So, So there is companies out there using this concept for wind turbines, hydroelectric turbines, and even irrigation pumps, which... As an engineer, I find interesting because you're talking about the spinning, pushing something through with a turbine. I never, I don't think I ever would have made that connection. I don't think I would have ever looked at a whale and went, I bet I could make a better fan. Hmm. I will not be the person that jumps on the bandwagon and says I could have did it because I didn't do it. So obviously I couldn't have not have done it. Well, that was easy to follow. I appreciate that. Well, you're welcome. But that's kind of the best way to put it is if you could have done it or would have done it, you would have done it. So I think it makes perfect sense when you think about it. And years ago, on the laundry list of things I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was very, very little, marine biologist was on there. As I went through a period where I was fairly obsessed with most aquatic life. And I think it's really interesting the way that uh, sharks and fish and, and whales, and, and in a big way, dolphins, use their fins and their tails to direct them while they're going through the water. And I only say that because when, you, when you're running as, as a person, because we're, we're shaped so funny, when you're running on land, you can go pump your legs harder and go faster. You mm-hmm. can be lazy and slow down. You can change the way your feet leave the ground so you can put more weight on your toes or you can run flat-footed. Like, there are things you can do for more speed, but there's very few things you can do that affect your head because we don't run we don't we don't move face first we move chest first we move in an upright position so with with like fish and stuff when they're going through the water they're going straight head first so every movement their body has everything affects the direction that they're going and when they have things on the sides like giant fins which are equivalent to our arms and they just kind of tip you know tip the back of it or like a, like a bird's wing in the air they just tip the back. They shoot straight up. I just find it to be really interesting. I never would have made the connection with turbines either, but I'm really, really happy that you pointed that out. Well, then I'm going to go to another fish. I like fish. You ever seen a box fish? Mm, they have a very, un- a very <clears throat> unique shape to them. They are rather boxy, but they have this like aerodynamic look to them still. And Mercedes-Benz made the bionic car. The bionic car is exceptionally ugly. That's good. And and I don't think it's ever going to sell because of that reason. Like, But it gets amazing fuel economy. Are we talking like ugly, like the Tesla super truck thing ugly or like ugly, ugly? Oh, uglier than that. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, it's just an awkward looking vehicle, but something pretty interesting. What that design did was create a vehicle that had a ridiculously low drag coefficient. Being an engineer, you know, friction coefficients, drag coefficients, these mean something to me. It's how much air pushes against it. And when you use that design on a car, the the drag coefficient on the vehicle was 0.06, which doesn't mean anything to anyone. 
But what I can tell you is, is when a penguin swims through water, their drag co- uh, coefficient is 0.19. So 0.19 for a penguin who feels, when you ever see them swim through water, you it's almost like it's effortless. This mm-hmm. vehicle can move through the air at 0.06 coefficient. So is, is that coefficient, is the number gets lower? Is that better? Is that what you're trying to point out? Yeah, at zero, you'd be in a vacuum. So it's okay. it's moving through this air and moving the air out of the way for that vehicle at a very high efficiency. Okay, Ugly, so, will never sell, but it is very efficient. So is the vehicle itself, just bear with me on this. I got two really weird things to ask. Is the vehicle itself pointed and elevated so that it cuts through straight through the air and the air goes underneath it and above it almost uninhibited? Or is the vehicle so close to the ground, air doesn't get under it at all, and it pushes over it and kind of pulls it through? Really kind of neither, because you never want air under a vehicle. That's one thing that you just don't want for high-speed reasons, and, and you know that from racing. We grew up in a racing family. Oh, you mean you mean the airplanes without wings we call top fuel rails? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, but it's also not... It's a tall car. It, it looks tall. What'd you say it, it's called? It is the Mercedes-Benz Bionic car. You're going you're gonna to look it up on your phone, aren't you? Yes, it's a field trip. Keep talking. Okay. Well, it's it was interesting to take a look at because uh, they obviously did it as an experiment. It's not going to be a car you see on the lot, but it is oddly shaped so that it, it functions really well going through the air. Yeah, I can see I can tell I can tell by your face that you've seen it. No, uh yeah, I've seen the car, but what I said, it it matches exactly what I said in the second one. Which one? Like there's almost no ground clearance at all, so air has to push down on the nose, which is short. But if you notice that the the angle of the the um sorry the windshield is almost like I don't know, it looks almost like a forty five degree angle. Like it's <laughs> it's gonna cut straight down. It's gonna put its nose straight on the road, and the air is just gonna right around it. Well, it's and I gonna... I think I may have misunderstood your second one because I was thinking that you were saying that the whole vehicle was short. No, and no, pushed no, air I... over it. No, no, not no, no. I, I, I just mean that there was no room for air to really get. So another interesting one I want to go to is the Japanese bullet train. They were having trouble when they first designed the bullet train. It was making too much noise. You were getting, well, basically sonic booms in cities. And in Japan, noise pollution is a big deal. You cannot run the train if it makes that much noise. And what an engineer did is modeled the current bullet train with that long, long, elongated nose mm-hmm. at, after the Fisher King, the bird, the Fisher King, mm-hmm. how it how it dives into water with almost no splash. They took that design, changed the bullet train, and it increased its speed by more than 10 percent and made it more, more than 15 percent more efficient reducing all the noise that wow. it would cause in the city also and i think everybody's seen the picture of the fisher king some wonderful photographer took a photo as it's just dipping the nose it's just doing the dive mm-hmm. and the, and they just kept running these models and now they have a bullet train that is faster more efficient and able to run now because it doesn't make the noise all because of a bird that's awesome i think that it's neat when they take the attributes of an animal 
and a quality they like or they want to reproduce. And they apply it to something very, very different than what it's being currently used for. So they don't want to make a splash in water. So they apply it to aerodynamics with a train because they don't want to make a sonic boom. Or we were talking about, you know, the car and the fish. Like it, the, I think it's very, very inter- I guess interesting, I don't know, impressive where they can apply these different you know, attributes and twist physics, if you will. I think, I, mean, I, I think it's cool. Well, and you get, that's where biomimicry becomes this big deal. This is not a common practice. This is not something that humans do instinctually. As a human, we believe we have posable thumbs and a big brain. We don't need any help. But look at even just these examples. The, the next one on my list was Velcro. And no, it wasn't NASA. No, it wasn't aliens. It was a Swiss engineer who realized he had a hard time getting burrs out of his dog's fur. I didn't know aliens were on the list of suggestions, but okay. <laughs> well, again, you got to cover all the bases. But yes, uh, uh, there are certain inventions that sometimes come up as aliens did it. But, you know, uh, I think it was George de Menstrel. It's a Swiss engineer. He, he just decided to get out the microscope and take a look on why in the heck these things were so hard to get out of the dog's hair. Realize that hook and loop method. That's how we, the, it's that curiosity of someone who doesn't have the ego, who doesn't have the ego to say, I will figure this out. They have the curiosity to look around and see what's already doing it. And when the, we talk about a bullet train or a vehicle, we're just talking about cutting through air, no different than cutting through water or air for a creature. I started, as I was doing the research, I really started to kind of fall in love with the elegance of biomimicry. That makes sense. When you think about birds, I think about like most species of raptors, eagles, falcons, hawks, large birds as well as small ones, that when they, they go into a dive, right, they go head first and they pull their wings in tight and they dive straight down. And right before they hit the ground, they pull their wings out and they catch all that air and it slows them down enough to either grab what they're going to grab or they shoot straight back up into the air. When you think about it, that's pretty similar to skydiving. Some dude jumps out of a plane and at the right moment, they pull the parachute out and it inflates, catches all the air and flows down. I know that's a big reach because we weren't born with wings, though. So we use we use, you know, parachutes for our wings. And I don't think that ever would have been thought of had it not been birds been doing it to catch fish and bugs and other birds for a long time. As I was looking through these, I found really cool things. One of them, because of my work with plants, I'm not a botanist in any way, but I was always interested on in how sugar snap peas can't get wet. Have you ever seen how their leaves just simply cannot get wet? And what I found out is this hydrophobic materials that we make now that cannot hold water in any way if you pour you, i'm sure you've seen it on facebook where they pour water on something and it just comes right off it yeah. it's not it's not wet they actually got that from lotus leaves which really? uses the same kind of the same kind of wax like overlay structures that sugar snap peas do so when i water sugar snap peas their leaves are f- designed to funnel the water towards the base of the plant without leaving it on the plant so it can't get burnt. Sugar snap peas cannot be in direct sunlight, intense sunlight for very long before they start to die. Well, if you have water on the leaf, it amplifies whatever sunlight is there. It has it has adapted to a point where the water funnels down to the bottom where it can get to the roots, but not stay on the leaves. Yeah, well, for all intents and purposes, when you put water on leaves, if a, if a, a drop of water sits there any part of the leaf under that drop centers under a microscope 
or a magnifying glass, if you will. When light comes through it, it just makes it worse. That's why when they say if you're going to water your plants on a really hot day, you water them at the base. You don't spray the leaves. Yeah, or in the morning or night where, where they're where they're where it's taken care of long before the heat of the sun is out. Mm-hmm. And since I, I wrote another note on the side of the paper as a side note, just in case it, I could squeeze it in here, there's a couple of different things. The veins on a leaf is quite literally the best dis- distribution design that plant has created. So the way those veins inside of a leaf look is based on its cell structure, its thickness, and its preferred environment. That if you hold it up and look at it, that is the best distribution of water that can be created for that leaf. And that distribution that we look at that is like how our lungs look, how a tree looks, how how a lot of things are designed, which has that big tube breaks into more smaller tubes that breaks into more smaller tubes until it finally ends. Oh, you mean like it, your spinal cord? Um, yeah, look, that's exactly what they look is, like. Is that, is that the nervous system? The, the, yes, your nerves or your blood vessels, your veins. Yeah, there's a, a Murray's Law that has a calculation for the difference in which how it will start big and where it will end small because that's, of nature does it the same way every time. Well, that, that's kind of almost like a I'm not going to say a fundamental life, but look at just that basic like building structure and every other facet of life that you see it, even things that are really random. You wouldn't think of like, okay, let's look at mine shafts. Let's look at, you know, the way rivers run. Let's look at ant colonies. You have a giant tunnel and all these little tributaries that, that are, that are, you know, that go off on their own and they always come back to the main structure. And I only say it like that because that's kind of common and you would never make that connection. I, I mean, leaps are a lot, a lot easier to see through than your hand is. You can hold your hand up in a really bright day to a real bright light, and you can kind of see through the edges of your fingers. But a leaf, you could just grab it off the tree. If you hate your tree, you rip it off your tree, and you can look at it. Well, it, it will grow more. Just don't take a lot. I have taken a leaf off a tree or taken one from the ground to put under a microscope for kids. So anyways, so another cool thing that they found that I hadn't even seen until I did the research is bird safe glass bird safe glass uses small strands of like uv reflectiveness so they can see them yeah and they got that from spider webs to that mimic makes sense how spider webs reflect back and keeps birds from hitting them that makes sense well because birds see in, in like almost like wavelengths and they don't see glass unless it's filthy unless there's a reason if it's clean they'll fly into it every time i have at the back of the house, that bay window, mm-hmm. you it, it will claim a bird once a year. And I don't know if they're fighting themselves or if they just don't see it, but at once a year, one will hit it. And most of the time they fly away, not every time. But I like yeah. this idea of this, this UV stranding. We don't see it. It doesn't affect us whatsoever. Well, I mean, if it's, if it's based on like how spider silk is, it's one thing to, to see a cobweb, but think about how fine a spider's web is to actually look and see a spider's web that has an active spider on it. It's going to look like that thing is just floating. It's there though. And there's it's strong too. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the tensile strength of spider silk is pretty impressive given how big it is. Well, and that actually leads to my last one is that is both silkworms and spider silk. It is studying that that has given us carbon nanotubes that create massive strength with very small structures, mm-hmm. which for fun, I found out carbon nanotubes is obviously just carbon atoms put into a tube like structure, which they call Bucky tubes. 
Bucky tubes? Bucky tubes. It's absolutely useless knowledge for all of us, but I found it and thought it was fun to say. All right. That was the other thing is I'm glad you brought up spider silk because that is the future of our tensile strength for for things is going to be carbon nanotubes. And they did get that from silkworms and spiders. I'm not surprised. You know, you know what I actually always waited for and because I'm a, a fan of comics and I grew up watching science fiction. I waited for years for the government or someone to build uh, like an electromagnetic exoskeleton, like set of body armor that's mimicked off the way ants are built because ants are so strong, <laughs> like a like a master chief from Halo suit armor. I've been waiting for it for years. Well, you've seen like lift assist equipment at the plants for what we have where you you put on this vest that gives you this extra exoskeleton with hydraulics in it that allows the guy to walk over, pick up the transmission, move it and set it down without using the bulk of their strength. Yeah, yeah, that's at, that's at the shop. I mean, something I can get at Walmart for eighty nine ninety five. <laughs> well, that might take a little longer. Right, right next to the ammunition. <laughs> that, that may take a little bit longer to accomplish. Right yeah. now, it's still very expensive. That's because no one that no one that has stupid money has bought it yet. You wait. You know how awesome that'd be. Like you pop a flag. Oh, don't worry, honey. Put on your vest. Pick the car up and move it. <laughs> so. I think we've covered a lot of things that give people the idea and understanding of how biomimicry works. Now what we need is the future to change a little bit. If we want to fix our energy structure, our grid, that's how we're, that's the future of our electrical grid is to follow biomimicry, be able to use the environment around us to, to power our needs without disrupting nature. And I wrote down, of course, solar, hydro, wind. These are some things that are, are really obvious. But I think there's going to be new inventions that really help, distribution inventions that will help us too if we really dug into biomimicry. I personally think solar and wind are the way to go. I don't think there's any future in hydro. I think that for a future in hydro, it's got to be based on the coast where the oceans are because we're not, we're not going to build any more dams. So it's not like we're going to have any, you know, any more of those. Well, also when it comes to climate, I know so many people, when we talk on this show, we're kind of talking to the choir, but so many people in the world consider making changes for climate as inconvenient. But I think that if we functioned within the environment, like we talked about earlier, we could curb climate without really necessarily devastating our lifestyle. It just takes it. We have to be used to looking at things different, doing things different and being open to making changes. I think that we could still live a very successful and relaxing life with good habits it, and still be within the environment if we followed the engineering concepts of biomimicry. You're not wrong. And like I said before, at the very beginning of this, this goes to education and teaching people to understand not necessarily, you know, why turbine fins are shaped the way they are or what is important about the tensile strength of spider silk, but what you can gain from a symbiotic relationship with nature when it's not us or them, when it's not, oh, they got in my garbage, I'm going to, you know, have a trap it out and kill these raccoons. When, when you When you realize the effect you have and why things do what they do, you can start to understand the relationship and how to build a better one. And if you can build a better relationship, even if it's little by little, then life gets easier. Your life doesn't have to be needlessly complicated and stressful to be good for the planet. 
you just have to realize the things that you're doing that you can improve on and, and start making changes. Well, even the economy and people haven't quite put it together yet. This whole concept of a circular economy that we mm -hmm. talked about way back in season one, that zero waste economy is just trying to create a system that functions like nature. Nature doesn't waste any resources. No matter how the cycle of life goes, every resource gets used. We're just not, be, we're not acting smart enough to do the same. And even our economy can function on that and it will get better because I think of all the resources we waste. If we use them, it's only gonna make it function better. Absolutely. And I think that when it comes to resources and, and how many things that you or I waste, I think a lot of it is putting wants before needs and not knowing where that fine line is in between. I think that once you have an understanding of what you really need in life, it's easier to kind of lower your waist and kind of make your footprint a little softer. And we've had these conversations about, you know, my, my plastic mountains time and time again, like things that are cool. So you want them, but you don't need them. I don't know. I think there's a lot that we can still do. There's a lot that has to change to make this earth a pretty place. Well, and before I close us real quick, something I realized, you know, I'll research these things and something weird will pop into my head. I figured out that branding and advertising for companies is just an attraction to get people to like those companies, right? Or at least go look at them is no different than those exotic birds with all the colors and dancing around and their love dance that they do to try to get a mate. Oh, for sure. Marketing is <laughs> it, marketing is mankind's version of peacocking. You're absolutely <laughs> correct. Like, you're so right. I mean, but it was one of those things you're reading about and you're going, oh, my. Yeah, we do that yeah. even when we don't know we're doing that. Yeah. Every time you see a commercial, that's a company bringing you a pebble like you're a penguin. Like it's <laughs> it, it it's just them saying, hey, look what we got. Are, are, come come spend your money here. And the only difference in nature is that when they do that, they don't want money per se. They want a whole different type of transaction versus in our world where we spend billions and billions of dollars on Super Bowl ads and commercials and yeah so it's it's kind of funny when you bring it down yep so hopefully everybody has a better idea of biomimicry and you can start seeing it when you look around look at products and see if there's any any kind of inspiration taken from nature maybe when you're out shopping and you do have to buy something if you see something that has it it's probably going to work a little better so that's all we have for this week if you like this episode, do us a favor, share it on social media or with a friend. Other ways you can support Realistic Sustainability is becoming a monthly sustainer on our Anchor account. Thank you for those of you who, ha who have joined that because you can do it for as low as 99 cents and it just kind of helps us out. Or if you don't want to do it that way, you can leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps us out because it helps us get found in all the search engines. Thank you again. And remember, we only have to get a little bit better each day. Little bit, little bit, big bit. I'm Mike. And I am Nick. And we'll see you next week. Feeling overwhelmed by climate change? Looking for sustainable and ethical brands to support? That Ethic is perfect for you. Ethic is a simple browser extension that helps you find sustainable and ethical brands online. 
Learn more at ethic.org, E-T-H-Y-K.org.